Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Although it's played a major role in its history, the three-century story of slavery and resistance in California has been largely untold. It involves the Spanish missions, Native American boarding schools, and indentured Native American ranch hands, black miners, kidnapped Chinese prostitutes, and convict laborers, and continues to today with the victims of modern trafficking. Jean Felser, a professor of American studies at the University of Delaware, reveals what happened in her latest book, California, A Slave State, which is published by Yale University Press, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. And, and happy Juneteenth. It's a real appropriate day for us to be having this conversation. You say California owes its origins and prosperity to, to slavery? I do, and it it took its prosperity in a whole series of different forms, as you just said, from the missions, from Alaska natives transported into California by the Russians, kidnapped Chinese girls, convict laborers starting at San Quentin, up through the Indian boarding schools at the turn of the century, and into modern human trafficking. So slavery at one level was always about profit. And, and, and California how, profited. And how different was it from what happened in other parts of what were to become the United States? Well, California was unique in, um, in, from the other states. Some of the ways it held on to, it created and held on to enslaved people were true elsewhere. Slavery is always violent. It involves not being able to choose where you work, leave where you work, and it always involves ownership of the human body. It's very different for women than for men the control of the human body. But those are constants. But California was an empire state. It was a colony, first of Spain, then of Russia, then of Mexico, then of the United States. And so the fact that it had no self-empowerment and was invaded by all of these different countries for different reasons marks it as not um it makes the quote peculiar institution only peculiar to the many forms it took in California but California was admitted into the union in 1850 as a free state was the slavery unnoticed oh it was very noticed um slavery is always very visible it's not it's hard not to notice slavery whether during the period of the captives working on chain gangs and people in the streets of San Francisco could hear the rattle of chains. There were prison brigs and all night long, people could hear the wail of prisoners trapped in the prison brigs docked in San Francisco. We see human trafficking when we go into a motel and we see a woman changing our sheets in the conference hotels, and the chances are very high that she's trafficked. Slavery is 
is noticeable. It isn't something that we have to work hard not to see slavery. But there are contradictions in this story. Didn't California ship gold to Washington during the Civil War to support the Union? Although, as you point out, slavery continued after that? Yeah, the United States profited very much, as well as California profited, off of the slavery of enslaved blacks, plantation blacks, who were marched across the plains, marched across the plains by their plantation owners to dig in the mud and look for these little specks of gold. As getting part back of the to gold what, rush. The gold rush. Yeah. <laughs> but getting back to what you just said, California was admitted as a free state. But in its constitution, it said slavery will not be tolerated. Hmm. Tolerated is not a legal standard. There was nothing to enforce the phrasing that slavery would not be tolerated. And anything in any constitution, whether it's federal or state, needs what they call implementing legislation that was never put in for slavery in California. So it marked a sham intention. Well, let's go back to its beginnings. It began hmm. with the Spanish invaders 250 years ago. Uh, there were 320,000 Native Americans living in California when they arrived. Weren't many of those Native Americans forced to build a chain of Catholic missions? The, yeah, the Spanish invade in 1769, and they've got two goals. One is to convert the 320,000 Native Americans to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And they're carrying a papal bull, a directive from the Pope that's telling them to do this. Um, but also, the Russians are trying to invade from the north. And the Spanish thought that if they built this chain of missions, it would also control California for Spain, Northern California, Alta California, north of the Mexican border. And it would stop the Russians coming from the north. You begin your book with the story of a, Wail a Wailaki girl, I guess that was a tribe, who was kidnapped and escaped a number of times. It's based on her recollections nearly 60 years later? Yes. Um, yeah, her name was pronounced Zixa. It was a very guttural, yeah. Wailaki language. There's as much no as way that I was going to try to attempt it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to talk to some Native American linguists to figure out how to pronounce it. It would be something like Zixa. Zixa was a 10-year-old little girl. And she lived in Central California along the Eel River, beautiful river that's a canyon with redwood trees on either side. And it was inland. And it was one of the last places that the American military sought to commit its genocide, to open California land for settlers. So we're now at 1861. We're right at the beginning of the Civil War, where, as we know, Lincoln had to really be pushed 
to acknowledge that this was a war over slavery, mm. not just over states' rights. Zixa lives along the Eel River, and the American military swoops in to take her village so they can control her land. They slaughter almost all the men, and the women and children flee. And Zixa and her sister and her mother flee into the Redwoods, and they're captured, and they're taken to a fort that had been built to be a slave plantation three miles from her village. And she and her sister and her mom are held captive at this fort. And slave catchers, actually at the time they were called traffickers, come riding through her village. And time after time, they seize Zixim. Why her story is so haunting is that she manages to escape She's sold first to a hog farmer. He comes back and kidnaps her again. But she flees 80 miles through the Redwoods using the knowledge she had as a Native American who lived in these woods to survive. And she's bought and sold at American, at U.S. military forces, forts, over and over and over again. And each time she flees to find her mom and she lives to grow up. When she's 91, she says, white people need to hear this story. And she finds a biologist, a white biologist, and asks her to transcribe her story, which this biologist and anthropologist does. And that's how we've come to know her story of incredible courage of this little girl. And what was the reaction to that? Were people surprised? The reaction to her story? Yes. I was surprised. <laughs> um, I've, you know, especially today as we think about Juneteenth mm -hmm. and all the African-American slave narratives that are now available and more and more are getting republished all the time. I had never read and people had never read the story of a Native American child who frees herself mm -hmm. and then tells her story in her own words. So it's a very unique and powerful story of people's drive toward freedom. Russian, as you mentioned, Russians, the otter hunters brought Alaska natives into California. Wasn't that the beginning of a Pacific slave triangle to China? Yes. We think about the slave triangle that we know of along the East Coast for rum and enslaved African-Americans in the Caribbean and actually within the northern part of the United States. The Russian story really surprised me. The Russians are crossing the Bering Strait and Bering um, is crossing the Bering Strait, looking for a Russian path to China. Russia really wants to open trade to China. And instead of climbing over the Ural Mountains, they were looking for a water route hmm. to China. Bering capsizes on the rocks. 
and he dies. His crew spends this horrible winter on a narrow little volcanic island. It's only 100 miles from Russia. And they survive the winter, and they discover thousands of otters swimming around this little island. They rebuild what they can of the old boat, sail the 100 miles, and take a 1,000 otters with them back to Russia. And the they're traveling now with hundreds of thousands of dollars of what we call soft gold of otter fur. Mm-hmm. And this launches the Russian invasion of Alaska, the cap the capture of Alaska natives, who were the only ones in their very low fur skin kayaks. They were the only ones who knew how to kill the otter. And after the Russians wipe out a huge amount of the Alaska native population and all of the otters, they turn right and they sail from Kodiak Island right down the coast into California. And those are the first slaves imported into California. They build a fort um, called Fort Ross. It's really very beautiful. People used to go there to picnic. I used to go there to hike with a bottle of wine. And I didn't know that it was a slave fort for Alaska Natives built on Pomo Kashaya land um, to keep the otter trade going until there were no more otters. My so guess, this is also where the environment meets slavery. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Jean Felser, P-F-A-E-L-Z-E-R. Her latest book, California, A Slave State, is published by Yale University Press. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You mentioned San Quentin Prison earlier. What role does she play in, does it play in this story? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we've... We talked a lot over the past few years, and especially around the time of Ferguson, about the carceral state and the profits that we make off of prison labor. Right away in 1850, there was crime in California. Also, California didn't have a working class. It didn't have a laboring force. And it needed to build the cities that would support and fund the gold rush. And there's an incredible economic boom, not just up in the Sierra Mountains, but in Sacramento and San Francisco to create an industrial city that would support the gold rush. What happens is that the state legislature, the brand new state legislature controlled by Southern plantation owners knows it needs a prison, needs a penitentiary. And it funds this really corrupt guy, his name's James Edsel, and give Edsel hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a penitentiary. Hmm. He doesn't spend the money to build a penitentiary. In San Francisco Bay are 400 ships 
abandoned ships where sailors and captains just jump ship and rush up to the gold country. And what Edsel does is he builds a couple of prison brigs and he captures people, buys them from jail. The legislature orders small rural California jails to give him their prisoners and they become his personal slaves. And he sails these prison brigs all over the bay, building mansions, building sewage systems, building roads for the city, but not building a penitentiary. Paving the streets of San Francisco. The people people that we're talking about, mostly Mexicans and Chileans who'd come up there, who were labeled vagrants? They were labeled vagrants so that they could be legally seized and put to work. There were people coming from all over the world. Many of the first prisoners are white or Mexican or Chileans. Um, a Why few African Americans. It seems Chile is pretty far away. There are so many other countries between Chile and California. It was actually easy to sail from Chile up to San Francisco. So the Chileans and the Argentinians um, are some of the first people in for the gold rush. Hmm. And then the Chinese who sail across the Pacific are early in for the gold rush, Chinese men. It took a long time to get from the East Coast to California. You had to cross the plains, you had to have enough money for mining equipment, or you had to cross over through the jungles of Panama. Um, There was no Panama Canal. And you take a tiny little boat up and over the Chagra River and then land on the Pacific Coast side, there are thousands of people waiting there for rides, for ships to take them up to San Francisco. So in some ways, it was a lot easier for people from Latin America and Asia to get to the gold rush first in, along with, or even ahead of white, quote, pioneers. And not just San Quentin. At local jails, didn't settlers pay off wardens and lease prisoners to work in their fields and guard their cattle? In effect, making prisoners slaves? The very first law California passes, the very first law, 1850, it's called the law for the government and the protection of the Indian. So after they pass the Constitution that says... Slavery will not be tolerated in California. And as we say, tolerated was not a legal standard. The very first law is this law for the protection of the Indians. And it legalizes the capture and forced indenture and sale of California Native Americans. This is going on at the same time as the genocide with the U.S. military clearing the land for white settlers. So this is called the California genocide. Yes. And that was a result of that 1850 act for the, the government and protection of Indians. 
it's actually even starts before that, mm-hmm. where people realize that California is fertile, that it's got land that hasn't been worn out by tobacco and cotton, and settlers are coming to settle California even before the gold rush. That's how they actually discover gold is a worker for John Sutter was just digging in a creek to build a cabin or a a ranch house. And he sees flecks of gold in the river. So that's happening before the gold rush, this energy to conquer California. Later, were Native American killed and their wives and children supplied to work on new farms and hotels, and also as wet nurses, nannies, and I assume in brothels? Exactly. That's what, there wasn't really a tradition of Native Americans working in brothels because they didn't need to. With this law, quote, for the protection of the Indians, they were able to seize, quote, vagrants. And those were all of the women and children who weren't killed in the genocide, mainly women and children and and little boys who weren't killed in the genocide. So Native Americans are seized to become that labor force. Um, So they're working, digging fence posts on ranches or like Zixa, she was hired to be a nanny and a sex slave to a hog farmer. And this is happening all over California. Um, Some travelers said that there wasn't a home they passed in Sacramento where they didn't see an enslaved Indian child. Weren't there slave revolts? The first one, 1769. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important part of my book and the story is that every single place, every single place where there was slavery in California, there was some kind of a slave revolt or slave resistance. In San Diego, at the very first mission, the San Diego mission, Mission de Acala, um, the tribe that's captured to work there are mainly the Ipai and the Kumeyaay. And within a couple of years of captivity, the Kumeyaay organized a massive slave revolt um, from many clans coming from the west near the ocean, coming from the mountains. And they rush into mission, um, the San Diego mission, Mission de Acala, and they burn the mission, they kill the head priest, and they free all of their people never to return from the mission. Didn't enslaved blacks join with free blacks to create a West Coast Underground Railroad? We don't think of an underground railroad in the West normally. We think of, you know, sort of New Orleans or Missouri up through Rochester, New York, and then into Canada when we think about an underground railroad. In fact, California was really unique. It was almost like a border state, sort of like Maryland, where enslaved blacks who've been brought out by plantation owners who now control the government, the governor's mansion, they've written the Constitution. But enslaved blacks meet free blacks. 
And free blacks have come out just like everybody else to make a fortune in the gold rush, but also they're running away from the National Fugitive Slave Act, which is passed in 1850, just at the time of the gold rush. And they're in flight. What they don't expect to find is an enslaved population, black population in California. And it's an act of fate that they find each other because it launches really the first civil rights movement in California, where free blacks are doing everything they can to raise money and to find white lawyers and to make it possible for enslaved blacks to go to trial where they're not allowed to testify and find their freedom, which is stipulated in the in the Constitution. Meanwhile, free blacks are super vulnerable. They realize that they're banned from testifying in court. Hmm. And if you can't testify, you can't present your freedom papers. You can't present your manumission papers that say that you're free. And so you're vulnerable to being captured. So for free blacks, the most important demand was the right to testify so that they could stay free. But there's this very unusual meeting up of free and enslaved blacks in San Sacramento and San Francisco in the mining camps along the rivers. And free blacks tell enslaved blacks, hey, you're free. You've been brought into a legally free state and we will help you gain your freedom. But then again, they went to prison. You, San Quentin prisoners were forced to work in a private jute mill for 12 hours at a time. And isn't something happening like that today at the Donovan Correctional Facility in the Ojai Desert? Yes, our tradition of, it's a really important thread, our tradition of the carceral state or unpaid convict labor um, threads through San, um, San Quentin prison is finally built. The legislature finally holds this corrupt guy to account and he uses the prisoners to build their own prison. At first, he doesn't want to spend the money to build a wall around San Quentin. And so the prisoners escape all over California. There's a big hoop de doo California white residents are very scared of these runaway prisoners. And um, that thread of using convict labor runs through. San Quint Quentin builds a series of mills inside its, finally inside its walls. And new manufacturers are allowed to use California prisoners without pay, without protection, with the guards provided by the state, the food, ultimately uniforms, so you can identify a runaway prisoner, are all provided by the state. So the state is funding these raw little new industries. California slavery is a global story not only with the Spanish and the Russians, but these 
mills that are built inside San Quentin are the biggest one was to make jute bags, jutes like burlap, and it comes from Calcutta. So we're part of this global trade um, with this jute, this burlap coming in that's going to be woven into jute bags to ship wheat. Wheat can just fly around. So it needs to be stuffed into something. And so San Quentin Prison is supporting very wealthy California farmers by weaving and stitching these jute bags. It was brutal. It was a legal marriage of slavery and merchant capitalism, you say. Exactly. Now, we haven't mentioned what happened with Chinese girls. Weren't Chinese girls kidnapped and displayed and sold in cage brothels in early San Francisco? Yeah, the story of the Chinese, the first Chinese migration into California is very gendered. The men came out for the gold rush, and they came out like men did from all over the world um, to make money, to have an adventure. Sometimes a group of families or a village would get together and support one Chinese man to come over. And first work in the gold the gold fields. They were purged from the gold fields, and they set up like many first-generation immigrants, like my dad. You know, they set up boarding houses and laundries and restaurants um, to support the gold rush because they're not allowed to dig for gold. But with the girls, with the women, it's a very different story. The Chinese girls do not want to come to California. They're kidnapped or sold from the port cities of China, from Guangdong, from Canton. And they're shipped sometimes in crates, in padded crates, um, to San Francisco. And San Francisco was like New Orleans. There were slave auctions at the docks Hmm. in San Francisco where the girls were stripped, they were inspected. Some of them had been contracted for, I need so many girls for my brothel. And the ones who weren't sold are then taken in a wagon into Chinatown. And there's a special room. It's called the Queen's Room. And that's a slave den where more girls were sold or miners or ranchers could come down from the hills and inspect and bid on these girls and take them away. In San Francisco, the brothels were caged and the girls were forced to solicit a customer and then a little curtain would be drawn. They'd service a customer and the madam would take the money and open the curtain. And we have these pretty terrifying and sad photographs of very young girls peering out behind these wire cages, um, looking very terrified and very passive as they're waiting for the next customer. They didn't live long. Um, the, The scrolls, the books, the records are that some of them service 20 men a day. So you can just picture what that would do Hmm. to a female body to 
to have sex 20 times a day, forced sex 20 times a day for these young girls. The average lifespan was four years. They would die from disease and hunger and assault. And also some of them managed to run away. And they were the founders. These runaway young girls were some of the founders of Chinatowns across California. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying my conversation with Jean Felser. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, California, A Slave State. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212 212- 209-2950. Do that during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy, but don't forget to make that $50 donation or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Gene Felser. The book, California Slave State, is published by Yale University Press. She is a public a historian, commentator, professor of American studies at the University of Delaware, and the author of a number of books. Um, You grew up in Los Angeles. When and how did you become aware of this dark part of your state's history? Yeah, I, I was born in Los Angeles. I went through the public school system. I went to Berkeley for my undergraduate and studied with stunning historians, including, you know, historians of slavery and American studies. I read, you know, I read Frederick Douglass, and I just didn't know this. None of this story was taught to me from my youngest years, you know, up through my undergraduate education. I came upon the story. It smacked me in two or three ways. Um, I was on your show a few years ago to talk about Driven Out, the Forgotten War Against Chinese Americans. And in that book is a picture of one of these little slave girls. She looks about 12 or 14 peering out through the cage. And it was a an image that I showed as I talked about Driven Out. And I looked at it and I kept saying to myself, where was the 13th Amendment? How was this possible? Where was the 13th Amendment? And so that was my first dive into answering how did this story of Chinese purges and flights to freedom fit in with the American legal system and something that we're thinking about today on Juneteenth um, of the limits of the Emancipation Proclamation, what it did and what it didn't do. The next thing that happened was that 
We have a little cabin up in Northern California, up in Humboldt County. And I read in the local newspaper that they had found a 15-year-old girl. She had been locked in a metal in a metal crate um, on a marijuana grow. And the metal crate had two holes dug in it, one to hose her down and one to poke her. When was with a this? Cattle. It's in Lake County. No, when? We're oh, I, this was a recently. few. This was a few years ago. She frees herself in 2015. So this was in our modern recent history. And one day, her owners drive down to Sacramento, the state capital, to do some shopping. They lock her in a motel while they go off and shop. And she sees a phone and dials nine one one, and she frees herself. And that story just jolted me. It's so near to this beautiful part of the world with the redwoods and the crashing waves and the the whales and where I hike and where I write. And this image of a they find the metal crate on the uh, marijuana grow. And they had her sexually service the field workers and the owners and also pick the buds off of the marijuana plants and constantly be raped. And that story just jolted me. I'm a mom. I have two daughters. And it was impossible not to feel as well as know that story. So those were, in some ways, the two bookends of why I felt I had to understand that I had grown up in a state that was tolerating slavery and encouraging it and legalizing it and finding ways to make a lot of money Desp off of it. Despite its image of being one of the most liberal states, uh, isn't it one of the top three markets in human trafficking today? It is. Um, that it, it is one of the it's one of the top five economic centers in the world and one of the top three locations for human trafficking. Right now, trafficking is happening in front of us all over the place. Um, people are being trafficked out of the detention centers at the border. Kids are being trafficked out of foster homes. Kids are being picked up at truck stops. Sometimes they're runaways. Sometimes they're addicted. Um, sometimes they're abused. And they're being charmed or seized and picked up. There's a lot of trafficking coming from Asia uh, for people to work in the sweatshops, in the garment industry that create our state with this utopian brand and comfy athletic clothes that we all wore during COVID. Also remote marijuana farms. Uh, the marijuana farms, because marijuana was illegal, the farms are very remote. Mm. And because it's actually, as it turned out to be, although first medical marijuana and then recreational marijuana are legal in California and Medical marijuana is legal, I believe, in 37 states right now. Mm -hmm. um, 
But in California, because it was illegal, the grows, the marijuana farms are really remote. Dirt road off of dirt road off of dirt road. Northern California is economically very poor. There aren't enough um, police force or sheriffs to really attend to this problem. And there are also cartels that are now controlling the marijuana trade in California. There's a Hmong cartel. There's a Bulgarian cartel. So there are scary places to go into. And when I interviewed our county sheriff about this, like, why aren't you dealing with this? And he said he doesn't have enough people to, you know, to really clean up the marijuana grows. And he said some of his people don't want to go up there. It's pretty scary up there. So this is happening all across the state from north to south and east to west. Are most Californians unaware of what's, that this has been happening over the last 250 years? Or have they just looked the other way? Well, I believe, you know, as a historian and as an activist and as a woman, if I didn't know the story, if it hadn't smacked me, hmm. um, where in some ways this is my professional work and my political work, I think a lot of people didn't know. And the reaction to California, a slave state, is really surprise and shock. People don't know how long a history it is. They don't know the different ways that it happened and all the ways we profit from it now. Um, you mentioned Donovan Prison down in Ojai. It's right across the border from Mexico. And there was a T-shirt factory set up in Donovan Prison where they were making T-shirts with all of the different brands of sports teams, of universities. Um, and one of the jobs, one is it was in Donovan Prison. We as taxpayers are supporting this T-shirt factory that are using unpaid labor in Donovan Prison. It isn't even to the benefit of the state, the work that's being done. It isn't like they're building roads or something where that argument could be made. One of the things they had to do was cut off labels that said made in Honduras hmm. and stitch in labels in the T-shirts that say made in the United States. So this is a for-profit industry that's still happening. The up in some of the women's prisons up by Sacramento, they're doing ecological work where they're having to destroy old computers that are full of toxic chemicals. And their job is to just smash them to bits because they don't have the tools to properly take them apart. They don't have the covered clothing to keep their bodies clean. They don't have inhalers to breathe in clean air as they're just surrounded by this toxic dust and they're very sick and dying. My guess on so today. All over the place. And we think, oh, we're going to recycle our old computers. And that's where they end up with female prisoners having to smash them and take them apart. 
My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Jean Felser. Her latest book, California Slave State, published by Yale University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. In 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom apologized for, quote, the war of extermination that the state's first governor, Peter H. Burnett, launched against all California natives in 1851. But aren't there still monuments and hospitals and health clinics named for people like John Souter, who enslaved 3,000 native men, women, and children? Yeah, I think that... Souter is a famous he, name today. He He's a very na- famous name today. There is... Um, fabulous Sutter Health Clinics and their statues of John Sutter in many parks. I I should have said Sutter. Dozens of street names named, you know, Mm -hmm. Sutter Drive, Sutter Road. Sutter Mill. um, Sutter Mill. And this is the same John Sutter on Mm -hmm. whose land or nearby land gold was found. Um, So, yeah, this is the same dude. Do you think that Governor Newsom is aware of the horrific history you've detailed in this book? I, you know, I'm going to be testifying before the Reparations Commission in a couple of weeks. California has two reparation commissions going on at the same time, one for Native Americans and one for the one that's making the most news right now are both a state and some local city like San Francisco reparations commissions. Um, And they, I don't personally know what Newsom knows. He's launched these commissions. He's got great staff. Um, I think, of course, he knows to some degree what happened, especially with African-Americans and Native American leadership in the state has made their demands very clear. Um, Different groups want different things, but it all comes down to slavery costs. Loss is real. And people are demanding that the perpetrators take both moral, ethical, and financial responsibility for the profits Mm -hmm. that have come through slavery in this state. It's not just a moral reckoning although that needs to happen too. Uh, About two or three weeks ago, the reparations commissions finally began to put dollar signs on what we're talking about in terms of money. And the first one that I read is $8 billion for African-Americans, which is like the state budget. So how do we do this? How do we make whole? How do we have justice that repairs. Was that part of the of what happened last month when a California panel approved recommendations on addressing past racist harms, including housing discrimination, mass incarceration, unequal access to health care? Yes, exactly. That Is this um, the first time it's even been addressed by people in California politics? I think that there have been movements for reparations throughout California's history and the sense that slavery costs and that there have been incredible economic losses as well as 
damage to bodies and to souls and to childhood. So um, the very first lawsuit for reparations in California happened in 1885, where the Chinese who were purged Hmm. sued the city of Eureka, not only for damages done to their property, their stuff, their furniture, their shrimp boats, stuff that they couldn't take with them when they were purged. But they sue for being victims of mob violence, victims of mob violence. And that language raises it from a damages or tort action up to a demand for reparations. So there's a history to turn to of people seeking reparations for the harm that was done to them. Native American children who were seized and put in boarding schools. And now the United States is really talking more about the Indian boarding schools, these kids who were captured. And as soon as they got to these schools, stripped of their language, stripped of their clothing, their religious practices, um, they were shipped out to work in these programs called outing programs. And those children and their families back at the turn into the 20th century wanted money for the damages done to their kids never getting educated, spending their childhood picking oranges in the orange groves. So demands for money have been consistent, but they've never been this public or this well organized or we'll see, endorsed by the government. Because there are so many groups involved, not just Native Americans and African Americans, but also Chinese people and Japanese people who have been treated poorly. And, uh, well, we have done earlier shows on the Japanese being incarcerated during World War II in California. Um, Is there anything you want to add in the last minute we have left? Well, I think the issue of justice that repairs should be on all of our minds. And as we think about today, and today being Juneteenth, that the 13th Amendment banned slavery except as penalty for a crime. Mm -hmm. And it didn't ban being put in prison it banned slavery except as punishment for a crime. So as we think about Juneteenth today and its limits and and its depth of, of freedom, that I think we need to think about what comes next. And what comes next is how do we make whole? How do we make justice that repairs? Well, I got to leave it there. My great thanks to Jean Felser, uh, who is a historian, commentator, professor of American studies at the University of Delaware. We've been talking about her latest book, California, A Slave State, published by Yale University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, thank you for welcoming me, me back. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, You can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. 
Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. Uh, We are going through a rough economic time. All of public radio is, but BAI especially, uh, the uh, pandemic has really hurt. So we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique, uh, in-depth content to you. Information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, if you make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, California, A Slave State by Gene Felser. So why not make that call now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month whatever you're comfortable with, for as long as you're comfortable. Uh, It allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because we rely 100% on listed donations. We are the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listed sponsored, and we've been here since doing this since 1960, so um, we have a really interesting history. Um, please give that call one more time, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, we have preempted tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Wednesday when my guest will be Craig Nelson discussing his new book, V is for Victory. And we'll see you then.